Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I get a chance today to spend time with my friend Jay Warner Wallace. And if you don't have his book, Cold Case Christianity, put it on your list. Whether you buy it today or pick it up for Christmas or ask for it, you're going to want a copy. And not only that, but he's offered now his free Case Makers course if you buy his uh, his latest edition, his 10th updated and expanded edition of Cold Case Christianity. It's a book I have in my library, I know right where to walk to get it, and I look at it often, and it's been a wonderful resource for me. Jim, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I so appreciate it. You know that. Yeah. I love talking yeah. to you. So I think it was this week I had uh, a guest on who had written a book on the gospel invitation, how important a public invitation is. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, if you were a trial attorney and you were uh, making your case in front of the jury— you would ask for your um, client's innocence at the end of the uh, argument, which I'm sure you've heard a million times. Yep, that's right. Yeah, no, as a matter of fact, there's no point. Look, when we make a case, we're making the case leading up to um, an an ask. We want you to do something with it. We want you to take this, not just that we've got some information. We want you to, I hope you're you're excited to hear this information, (laughs) is that we we are offering this information as part of a case because we're going to ask you to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And that decision we call a verdict. And and so what we're going to do, and we've talked about this before, that this is it's a reasonable set of evidences that point to the most reasonable inference that's the guilt of the defendant. And we're going to tell these jurors that, look, we're going to make this case and the evidence is going to be uh, it's going to point right to this guy. It's going to it's not going to point a foot to the left of him or a foot to the right. It's not going to point to the guy sitting next to him or his attorney. It's going to point right at him. But that evidence chain is going to stop short of everything you might like, because we can tell you everything that you need to know. But we can't tell you everything that could be known because we don't even know everything that could be known. So that that the evidence trails ends, the evidence trail ends uh, where we right where your unanswered questions begin. But Mm -hmm. all of us have learned to make decisions even though we have open questions. We decide to go in our car and drive in our car, even though we have no idea how it works. We we make lots <laughs> of decisions mm-hmm. with less than perfect information, but we have enough information to make the decision. That's what we do in criminal trials. That, 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 that line of evidences stops short of every potential unanswered questions. By the way, that's why we're not trying to prove something beyond a possible doubt, because that standard is far too rigorous for anything. There's nothing you know beyond a possible doubt. So we, we, we aim at a lower standard beyond a reasonable doubt. That leaves room for unanswered questions if the evidence is still strong enough to make the inference, even though you have an answer. How did, I, don't, I know that he did it, but exactly how did he do it? I don't often know because he hasn't confessed to it. So, so same thing is true here when we make the case on a stage or anywhere with your friends for uh, the gospel. Mm-hmm. There is more than enough evidence to demonstrate that Jesus rose from the grave and that he is, is who he said he was. It, it, all this evidence points right to him. It doesn't point a foot to the left or a foot to the right of him, but it does stop short of everything you might like. 
because we can't, every case I've ever worked, every case you will ever work will stop short of everything you might like. Mm -hmm. Every case has unanswered questions. So does this one. But that step you're about to take across your unanswered questions, we call that a verdict in jury trials. But here we're calling it a decision for Christ. We're, we're, we're a step of faith. But it's not a blind step of faith. It's the step that just simply steps across your unanswered questions. But it's not, look, the evidence, I think it gets you so close. That step isn't that big of a leap. So so the question here is, what are we doing if we're case makers, if we're, if we're making the case for the gospel? Uh, the, the gospel has all the power, but but people don't want to hear it often and you have to start doing some work to open their hearts to the gospel for a lot of the people i work with it's that they they've got objections that haven't been answered we need to get them to a point where they realize that their only unanswered questions are the same kinds of unanswered questions you would have about anything mm -hmm. so and, and you make those decisions without uh, hesitating so here we want you to do the same thing jim ever since i've admired your work on dateline and they would always show you with your evidence box well i've got my own jay warner wallace evidence box and everything uh, goes in there. So when we talk about something like this, and then I go back to our discussion we had about your friend Greg Kokel, where mm -hmm. uh, he was talking about harvester versus a gardener. And right. we talk about just today the fact that there isn't a trial attorney worth his his or her weight that would not ask for a verdict, not ask and invite the jury to make a decision in favor of their client. So when you are talking to unbelievers, what do you think makes them most resistant to the idea of being born again? Well, there's two, two good points in there, hidden in there. First of all, I think it's that we all uh, enjoy our own power and our own control. We all are the, kind of the gods of our own destiny until Amen. we realize there is, a, there is a God. So so a lot of it is autonomy. We just love autonomy. And the world we're living in amplifies autonomy, right? So like the, the multimedia, uh, the internet uh, world we're living, which we take it for granted now because it's been around for so long. You have to be a boomer like me in order to remember a time when there was no internet. But like for my for my millennial sons, uh, they don't they don't probably even remember a time when they didn't have that phone in their hands. It wasn't a significant a period of time anyway. And what that does is it amplifies autonomy. You know that we didn't have the same kinds of choices 30 years ago on media. If you wanted to watch, let's say, an episode of Star Trek, okay, well, you had to either catch it in its first, you know, airing. Mm -hmm. Or wait 26 weeks and hope to catch the rerun or hope it gets syndicated <laughs> so that eventually when it's syndicated, you can catch it that way. But then yeah. you got to be there at 7 o'clock sitting in front of that channel with that channel on. Maybe you could put a VHS tape in. You could record it. Oh, my gosh. Well, now you can. everything's on demand. Yeah. An on-demand yeah. world simply amplifies autonomy. And that's yeah. what I think keeps us from the gospel to begin with. What about that great guitar lick you'd hear on an 8-track tape? No, I know. But, but you had to wait forever. Well, no, listen, quadraphonic eight-track tapes, dude. We're talking about. Remember that that would separate everything into four different channels. Right. So yeah, we all the technology changes, and all this te this changing technology, all it's really done for us is amplify your ability to control everything you consume. You are the god of your own consumption. It's not dependent upon the three legacy networks. It's not contingent upon their schedule. Who even looks at a schedule anymore? No, I mean if you're if you're if your company like you know say you're, you've got YouTube TV or some other way of watching TV, well you can record all of those things digitally and just watch them when you want. Nobody is looking at the schedule and going, oh, I better be home in time for that. No, right. we have complete autonomous control over our media consumption. And not only that, we only put the voices in our head that we agree with. 
So you can find versions of the news all over the place and find one that is tailored just to your preferences. So you're just increasing your autonomy. You're increasing mm-hmm. your power to not only hear whatever you want to hear, but hear it spun any way you want it spun. So the reality of it is this is the world in which we're going to enter in with a message that is ancient and immovable and is not about it's not something you can create or tailor to your personal consumption and a world in which people are now conditioned to tailor every bit of truth to their own personal view well can you see now why this is going to be harder and harder the idea that there's an objective transcendent unflinching truth about the nature of god when people don't think there's an unflinching truth about anything everything's a matter of personal preference mm-hmm. so even your identity is a matter of personal preference there are no objective facts there's so str- of course there are but to, to a culture that doesn't uh, doesn't think there are it's harder to present one and the gospel is one of those objective unflinching facts of reality Yeah, Jerry Warner Wallace is my guest. His book is Cold Case Christianity. It is a modern classic, and it's been completely revised and updated, and he has quite a a gift that he offers with this. If you buy the book, you get a free case makers course. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, But the way you just described the news, Jim, and social media, oh, it was just so hard to hear because people can pick whatever lane they want to believe and just find things that support that lane and ignore the rest. No, that's absolutely true. This is also true about their religious beliefs, their spiritual beliefs. That's probably always been a, an area that people have kind of uh, you know, and done that anyway. You know, they but but this is just even more amplified in a culture that is this is being reinforced. This kind of autonomy is at least something that if you've got young people in your life, that you at least need to be aware of, because it turns out. That uh, most of us who live this way, this way of I've got complete control and it's just whatever I prefer, everything does change when um, their their world collides against maybe an illness or a tragedy in which now, like, for example, if you took this view of truth, this autonomous view of truth, this personalized view of truth, and and you impaneled it on a jury, well, you're never going to come to any kind of a verdict that necessarily reflects reality. If if you would go to a doctor because you're you've got cancer and you're looking for the treatment, um, I mean you you want somebody who actually knows what has objectively worked in other studies in other patients. You're you're not looking for you know well let's let's try Tylenol. I, I kind of like Tylenol. Okay, well <laughs> we need to know what objectively is the cure for whatever mm-hmm. it is I've got. So I I think that what most of us, even though we might hold an autonomous personalized view of truth, we will abandon it when the rubber meets the road, when it gets serious. And so I think that should be a window and opportunity for us to talk about, well, look, if if you were dying, physically dying of a disease, and I had the cure, you would want that objective, transcendent, unflinching, unflexible cure. You would want the one that you know works. Well, if you're dying spiritually, do you want the cure, the one that really works? Mm -hmm. Or will any cure suffice? And so we have to at least be able to help our 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 family members and our and the people who are, we care enough about to share that. Look, the one thing you said, it's true. Like like Greg and I are very close friends, Greg Kokel, and we talk about this all the time. And and I I'm at a point now where I will not make a case on the stage. You know, I did three services over the weekend, and most of the time they'll ask you to come in and just hey, well, just make the case for the reliability of Scripture, make the case for the resurrection, make the case for God's existence, blah blah blah. Well, if we don't make that case, and then at the end actually present the gospel there's no power in the case the power is in the gospel 
Mm-hmm. All we're doing with the case is 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 conditioning the the heart of a skeptic or somebody who's got these questions that need answered so that they can actually hear the gospel, which has all the power. So I'm at the point now where I won't do one without the other because I just don't think there's a point. We wouldn't you wouldn't make a case in front of a jury and then not ask for a verdict. So I won't do that anymore in front of an audience. I love that. Jim, can we talk a little bit about the Casemakers course? Because this is a free, it's a free course. It includes 30 video sessions and about 10 hours of content. And the principal study outlines, you can really learn a lot and have some serious material for your own ministry uh, as a result of this. So thank you for providing this. But can we talk, as we investigate truth, can we, would you talk a little bit about the three lies about the truth? Yeah, I, I think that the reality of it is, is that that um, we're in a place right now where uh, everyone is selling something. <laughs> You're selling your persona on, di- on on social media. Everyone's got something they're trying to advance. And, and I get that. As an author, you're trying to advance books. So what we really thought was, okay, I, I have no problem wanting people to, to deeper dive into these issues through the materials that we've written. But if I can't provide something for free, mm-hmm. um, I feel like I'm. it's all about what's in it for us. Right. Instead of what's in it for you. And so that's why we said, look, we're going to do this course that we actually, same course we present at Gateway Seminary. Uh, we now have made that available um, for free uh, to anyone who purchases the book. You can just go to our website at coldcasechristianity.com. You'll see it in the top banner. But but the idea is we're going to cover things like, you know, what keeps people from from making a decision? You're right. There's three there's three things that typically, three things that, that people use to shun the truth. I use that expression shun because it's kind of a twist on on the expressions that are in the words. The first one is rational objections. They just think that there's some evidence that they've seen, something they've seen that there's either not enough evidence for Christianity or some contradictory evidence they wanted to talk about. Fine. That's actually a very small group. And and we often as, as apologists think that that's the huge, that's the big group. That's why we exist. We exist because we these people who are have rational objections. Well, of course, there are people who have rational objections, but that's not the biggest group. The second one are people who have emotional objections. They they've had an experience in the church, or they were raised by parents that they they have a problem with, or whatever it may be, and it's their response to Christians or their response to the church or their response to something that is the obstacle that is keeping them from from uh from trusting Christ or even hearing the gospel or wanting to hear the gospel well that's not gonna that's not about the case for or the case against that's about your experience and we need to help them work through that and that's the third group is volitional it's people who just have a willful they are living their own lives they 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 um, have a position maybe politically that they will not surrender. And they think that this worldview does not advance their political positions. They have social positions. They have sexual positions. It's most of it is about your own sexual autonomy. To be honest, a lot of that is, is volitional. Do I want this to be true? And that's why I'd love you to love Tim Keller. When you would talk about this is, 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 can we discuss Christianity in such a way in which people would say, boy, I sure wish it was true. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and that idea that is, it is beautiful and it is the source of beauty, but we've been told by a culture that it's just the opposite, that it is controlling, that it is not produced beauty. It produces all kinds of isms, racism, misogyny, you know, homophobia, you know, all kinds of, of, of things that, that, that the culture is now embraced. Um, and, and if we can't help people to see that if you want to thrive as a human, 
if you simply adopted the biblical principles, whether you knew they were from scripture or not, you would end up thriving in a way that is unparalleled. It, it's not just that Christianity is true. It's that it's good. It's that it's beautiful and it produces uh, goodness and beauty. And so we have to at least make sure that's part of our case. Mm-hmm. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. We're going to take a little break and we'll come back and continue our discussion his, his book, Cold Case Christianity, is out now once again, revised and updated version. I do recommend you get a copy of it. We'll be right back. I'm Angela Smith, host of Reading the Bible Together. And have you ever read the book of Matthew? You know, at the very beginning when it has the whole genealogy of Jesus and read or tried to read through those difficult names and thought, who are these people? What what are their stories? You know, why are they listed here? In our next reading plan, we're going to be looking at five of the women in Jesus's genealogy. It's called Unexpected, Five Women in the Lineage of Jesus. We're going to take a look at Tamar, who was she? You know, what what is her story? We're going to look at Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary, Jesus's mother. All the women who you're going to hear on the podcast have contributed to the study guide. You can get your hands on that study guide at myfaithradio.com and sign up. I sure hope that you'll do this study with us so that the next time you go and read Jesus's genealogy, you'll recognize some of those names and know some of those stories. You can get that study guide at myfaithradio.com, and you can listen to Reading the Bible Together podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm back with my friend Jay Warner Wallace. His book is Cold Case Christianity, but that's just one of many books he's written. You can learn more about Jim and his work at coldcasechristianity.com. His book has been updated and revised, and it has a wonderful offer for a free case makers course if you buy that edition of the book. So, Jim, when we were talking about, you had mentioned Tim Keller, and I remember something he said when somebody was saying to him, you need to give me more evidence and his response was, uh, where is your evidence that I need to give you more evidence? Right. Well, and I, I think this is this comes down to something we call the burden of proof. Right. And often when you're talking to people who are not believers, they would argue that you have the burden of proof because you're the one who's suggesting that something that is not obvious, that it cannot be seen, that seems hidden, truly exists. In other words, it's not obvious to us. Things that are obvious don't need a case to be made for them. They, they're just obvious. We all experience them directly. But this is something that we don't expect. Not everyone experiences directly. So you tell me, if you're going to make a case for this, that burden's on you. Now, so that's why they'll say, I have no burden to show you. Why. Of course, you have a burden. I mean, if you want me to believe something that is not obvious to everyone by direct experience so that there's no need for us to even talk about it, we know it exists. We know the sun comes up and goes down. You don't need to make a case for that. Uh, but if you need to make a case for is it is the earth turning or is the sun moving around the earth that that's different now i need to make a case because you're you're making a claim mm-hmm. so so the same thing is true here if there's this hidden god that is not directly uh, you know available to all of us some of us don't see it then you need to make a case for that burden is yours not mine i don't need to make a, a case for the lack of god that is the the this the kind of base condition that i am experiencing <laughs> a lack of god so I don't make a case for things that are, are obvious by my direct experience. You have to make the case. Now, 
Okay, so that's where I think we need to talk about that burden of, of, of proof, right? So the burden of proof comes down to causes, what is causing something. That's where you have a proof of, the, uh, you need to make a case. What I mean by that is if we walked into a crime scene together and there's 10 pieces of evidence at the murder scene and we're standing on one side of the yellow tape and you, Bill, say, I think based on this evidence that that's the girlfriend who did this. And mm -hmm. I look at the exact same 10 pieces of evidence and I go, uh, you know what? I think that evidence actually points to this coworker. Okay. You're, it, we're both proposing that there is a cause for the murder, but we're proposing two different causes. So each of us, each of us has a burden of proof to demonstrate that our cause is the best explanation of the evidence. We both share a burden. You have to share mm -hmm. the burden to show me why it's the girlfriend, I for the coworker. Mm -hmm. Well, if we're both looking across the crime tape and saying, okay, here's the universe the way it is. I could say, as a theist, I think that the evidence in the universe is best explained by a transcendent mind that is the creator of the universe. You don't. You might think, well, that's your burden. Well, hold on. If if it's not a transcendent mind, you, Mister Atheist, are proposing that I can get everything in the universe from just space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. There is no transcendent mind. But then, what is the cause? We're trying to argue for a cause. If you're arguing for a cause, you have a burden of proof. And the fact that you're saying, well, it's not God, well, then you're going to be basically in the position that something other than God, space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, is the cause of everything, every condition of the universe. Well, that, that's a burden of proof that's on you. We each carry a burden of proof because we end up in the end both proposing that there is a cause for everything we see. And just the fact that you think it's not God, well, then it's got to be something according to your worldview, and that is your burden. So we both have a burden of proof. It's not just uh, so yes, I would that that's how I would approach it if I was talking to somebody who says, well, no, the burden's on you. Mm -hmm. It's not on me. Well, no, it's actually on both of us because what we're trying to do is find the best inference from the evidence for a cause. And causal explanations share a burden of proof. Mm, so interesting. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. I had a conversation, Jim, it wasn't more about about a month ago about the universe. And I know in the course to have a sub uh, a investigating God, and one of them is evidence for God from the fine-tuning of the universe. And I wish I would have had that information at the tip of my tongue, but I didn't. Would you talk to us about that? Well, yeah. So, so one of the things, we, one of those aspects, attributes of the universe that we see is that it appears to be fine-tuned. As a matter of fact, that doesn't seem to be a controversial claim. In other no. words, the, the cosmological constants of the universe are so finely adjusted, so finely tuned that if they were off by just the smallest, smallest imaginable degree, you know, uh, the, 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 the nature of, of gravity, of, of electromagnetism, of these, these, these constants of the universe are so finely tuned that it allows for a universe like ours to emerge. At a time, in fact, and if it's just a slight variation, the universe would not appear the way it does at all, and would not support carbon-based life like our own. It turns, and that this is something that people see, even atheists see it. They recognize that there that the 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 constants of the universe are fine-tuned. The only question is, what is the best explanation for the fine-tuning? Is 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 it is there a in other words, is there a fine-tuner? Um, is this a situation where there aren't any options that laws of physics are such that that no matter what you would do, they would always be tuned in this way? Now, it appears that that is not the case 
at least from physicists, do not believe that that is the case. They, they actually think that there's a number of uh, alternative ways in which the universe could be, um, that the constants of the universe could be aligned that would be very different than ours. And so, so this appears then that there's something about this. Let's put it this way. Um, Paul Davies, who is a physicist and a scientist, and he's really agnostic about whether or not there's a God. He says that this flat eyes is everyone agrees that the universe at least looks as if it was designed for life. The only question is, is it designed for life? You know, Mikio Kaku, who's a theoretical physicist and a, he's a futurist, you know, he's, he's written a lot. He's very popular. He's very, I think, very winsome as a speaker. He puts it this way. It's shocking to find how many of the familiar constants of the universe lie within a very narrow band that makes life possible. If a single one of these, he calls them accidents, were altered, Stars would never form. The universe would fly apart. DNA would not exist. Life as we know it would be impossible. Earth would flip over or freeze and so on. So it's kind of a winsome way of saying it. That that's, he's basically just arguing for this fine-tuning. Now, mm-hmm. now this, this is where I think that we have to ask the question. There's only a couple of options here. It's, just, it's, it's chance. This fine-tuning is just chance. But the odds of this being chance are really dramatic and that's why people are studying it because it doesn't seem like it's a good answer or it could be this just physical necessity the laws have to be this way and the physicists agree that that's not the case or it could be for example that there are just an infinite number of universes a multiverse and so the fact that we have one that looks like this doesn't surprise anybody because if you have an infinite number you're likely to get something that looks like ours you've got an infinite number the problem of course with multiverse theory is that if you have an infinite number of universes and one small, small percentage, 0.000000000000001% is a universe like ours, well, how many universes like ours are there? An infinite <laughs> number, because any small fraction of an infinite is still an infinite. Mm-hmm. So you start to get weird possibilities. You know, if you if, if of those infinite uh, universes like ours, just one, you know, point zero 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 a thousand zeros point one percent of those universes has life exactly like ours, with two people named Bill and Jim who are talking on the phone on a radio, at, you know, in the afternoon. Um, well, how many of those are there? There are an infinite number. And if there's an infinite number of those, well, how many are there? But where Bill actually has red hair instead of brown hair, mm-hmm. and Jim has black hair instead of gray hair. So you get, you get all of these these crazy options then, and and there's the problem, is that one one scientist said it this way: if if the multiverse, and he doesn't believe the multiverse theory is, is even viable, but if there is a multiverse, well then there's still a universe in which Elvis is alive, because mm-hmm. that's the craziness of multiverse theory. So I think what we have to do is realize that the multiverse doesn't answer it. You can't get it from from the necessity of, of physical laws, and chance won't it won't give it to you. So there's another option that fine tuning is evidence of a fine tuner, and I use the illustration of a of a house one time I had where where the killer fine tuned the house so that the gas leak would kill his family, and and when you saw the fine tuning, all the conditions that were met, the closed windows, the 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 clothing jammed up against the bottom of the gap in the door. That, that you realize, okay, hold on. This is the odds of this being an accident. This looks like somebody fine-tuned this for a murder. Mm-hmm. And and we don't have the right then to go in and say, well, I I, 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 can't, I can't accept the fact that there's a, a, an agent, a murderer who did this. It's got to be physics and chemistry. 
So it seems like what we're doing with the universe is we're saying, hey, I just reject the idea that there's a fine tuner, so I'm going to have to go some other way. But the, to be honest, the, the best and clearest evidence for fine tuning is a fine tuner. Mm -hmm. And we found that guy, didn't we? Yes, yes, we did. Okay, <laughs> that's how we. That, like, that's not always the case, you know. There's, it's not always the case. There are times when you don't, you don't find the guy. And but yeah, but but I, I think that it's important for us to go through then all of the options with people so that they can see that the other alternatives that are discussed by and the i think the most robust alternative right now that's being offered fine-tuning is multiverse theory and the lack of evidence from multiverse theory and the logical uh, uh, fallacies or the logical problems that it causes is uh, why most scientists reject it forget about theists it's 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 a it's a very it's almost like a metaphysics. It's almost like uh, scientists acting like they're religious, you know, like like they like, like they think of religion as as belief without 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 uh, good evidence. Yet here they are uh, embracing a notion that is lacks good evidence. So I think in the end, um, it's not. I think but here's what it comes down to: for all of these explanations, the fine tuning of the universe, the creation, the uh, the appearance of the universe in, in space, time, and matter, uh, the the appearance of design and biology, the the appearance of life in the universe, our consciousness, our free agency, the appearance of moral, objective moral laws, all of these uh, attributes of the universe, the secular scientists say we don't have an answer, but we hope that someday the science will provide it. So you'd have to sit in a position. Uh, a science of the gaps position. We don't have the answer, but still believe in science mm -hmm. rather than just look at the obvious fine tuners require a fine tune uh, universes requires a fine tuner. The appearance of design and biology is best explained by a designer. Information in the genome is best explained by a mind that is the source of the information. I mean, all of these point best to a, a, a transcendent mind. Why we keep on trying to deny that and twist and turn our ways into multiverse theories and the such, to me, is, is interesting. Mm -hmm. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest, and every time he comes on my show, he leaves me feeling smarter Taller and better looking. Well, one out of three isn't bad. So we're going to take a break and come back. His book is Cold Case Christianity. It's been updated and expanded. And I highly recommend you grab a copy. He also offers a very awesome free case makers course as a result of you making that purchase. If you have a question or comment, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. Be right back with Jim. My guest today is Jay Warner Wallace. You can learn more about his work at coldcasechristianity.com. His book, Cold Case Christianity, has been updated and expanded. It's uh, available. Don't take my word for it. You can download a sample chapter right at the website, coldcasechristianity.com. Jim, I just had a comment that came in that the listener said, I like to make the argument that the things that we see and experience in the universe— and they're called miracles by people of old, but it's the working of God through the cosmic laws he put in place. Physics, thermodynamics, and uh, everything, even moral law, that affects our souls. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's something that we, and isn't it great that, 
you're in a position and we all should be in a position to be able to kind of cut this pie from any side, you know? And, right. and a lot of times you'll have somebody who maybe that the stuff we're talking about today is like, Oh, this, who cares? You know, yawn. Okay. That's, that's absolutely fine. Um, and, and I think in the end we have to be ready for any alternative because you will meet people who their objection is that they are a fan of this science show and, and they, you know, that, that, that their objections lie in these areas. And, and mm-hmm. so we have to figure out a way to kind of cross those bridges with them. So I think in the end, that's okay. And, and be ready because you're going to have, there are going to be options and you're going to need some options. Uh, I always say that if you make a six minute case for Christianity, because you're responding to somebody's objection, you're going to need a lot more than, than six minutes worth of information, right? You're mm-hmm. going to need a ton of information. You just don't know which six minutes will be important to that person. So, but by the way, we do this so organically and so naturally about almost any other topic we're geeked out about. You know, if if you're a Rams fan right now here in Southern California, and like you, where you guys are, like you, you just lost, you know, Jefferson, your 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 receiver is no longer yeah. available to the Vikings. But now you're going to make a case for like, who's up next? Who's the next guy? Is it Addison? Who, who are they going to throw to now? Right. Well, and, and if you know the team well, then you can make a case for this from any angle. It's not because <laughs> it's it just comes naturally because you <laughs> know you're geeked out on this. Right. So and even I don't I don't even live there, but I know enough about it to be able to to talk to you about it. And, and it's not like, well, I'm studying this. I'm studying the I'm studying the Vikings so that if Bill has a question, I can. No, it just it's just you're just interested. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it happens naturally. That's what we're trying to do: is get people who are who are excited enough about this that it becomes the thing they they naturally research, they naturally think about, they naturally talk about, and they're ready uh, for any six minute opportunity. Yeah, I've I've said this before, and I don't like repeating myself. But if you are upgraded to first class, and you all of a sudden find yourself sitting next to Tom Brady, you would spend the next month telling everyone you ran into who you sat next to on a flight that's right yeah that's because and it's because you so that's that's a that's an issue of of are you you're so in awe yeah it's it's all it's so it does kind of expose where you're and this and this is true whatever i always think that if whatever you're able to make a case for that is probably what you think as as primarily important um because case making is hard um, mm-hmm. it, it, it requires deep reflection about a number of, of issues that maybe other people aren't as, um, it's, these are not necessarily easily accessible issues either. Mm-hmm. Like you'd have to go search for the answers here. So, so I think in some ways, um, when I see somebody is able to make a case for who the next, um, uh, receiver ought to be now that Jefferson's out for, you know, for four weeks, then I, okay. You're thinking, okay. Um, this is something that they are are geeked out on. This is important to them, and 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 not only that, they they the passion with which somebody makes that case exposes how important it is to them. So, so yeah, I mean, I think in the end, the question is: Are we that passionate about this? Is our lack of ability simply um, uh, evidence that exposes our lack of passion? You know, probably is. Mm-hmm. So we, we're going to have to really adjust our, like, what is it we care about? Yeah. So Jim, you were in law enforcement in Los Angeles for close to 30 years. Uh, well, I was 20, I was, well, I have a 28 year um, retirement. So, okay. and I, and I came in late. So everyone okay. wants to go out with 30, but I would have had to be too old. <laughs> <I'm> too, <laughs> I got, I got yeah. impatient. 
Yeah. So yeah. My, my question was, do you remember a time where you felt that there was some level of moral consensus in the world that lying was wrong, stealing was wrong, adultery was wrong? Um, and I'm not so sure the world feels that way anymore. Yeah, I wonder, is that it? Or is it just that we don't care? It's not that important to us. I don't know. Um, because I hear in California, what I see is that we, we still have, look, we have a very interesting situation with a district attorney who is not filing charges on crimes. So it's not as though he's saying, well, these aren't crimes anymore. He's just saying they're not important enough to file charges on them anymore. So I kind of wonder if that's where we are as a culture. Is it that, no, it's not that we've, we've decided that for some of us, it's okay to steal. Um, I, I, I think there's, we're saying, well, it's just not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't do it. You know, I wouldn't wear my shoes on the wrong feet either, but doesn't mean it's necessarily something I'm going to prosecute somebody for. And this, this is how I'm seeing it here in this large urban area. And I don't know, maybe that's different around the country, but, but when you've got somebody who's, who is in, who is the chief, um, law enforcement representative in your County, cause he's a district attorney and he's not willing to file cases on crimes that, that that used to be something you would go to jail for. Mm -hmm. And now it's something that we would just cite you out and help you show up in court. And if you don't, well, we'll give you another ticket to show up again. And this goes on and on. And and I, I do, I am concerned about that. Are we getting to a point where we just don't think anything matters enough to act? Yeah. So maybe you'd be willing to talk about evidence for God from objective morality. Oh yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, if we, if we, if we are going to sit here and, and, Look, in the end, when a push comes to shove, especially if you have kids, you become an objectivist pretty quick. You're right, because you're trying to teach your kids values. And even if your value is, then, oh, they should be able to determine what's true for themselves. Well, that's your value. So, right. so you think that's the objective, highest moral value. Everyone believes that there are objective moral values. The only thing we disagree about is what they are. But every one of us thinks that there are. It's very hard to live in a world in which there are no such things. And so you have to kind of supersize it, I think, for some people. Like at what point would you say, is it okay to torture babies for fun? If it's not, if it's not for anyone, well, you've just discovered objective moral value number one. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, if we're going to say, well, I could, and I've heard people who are so committed to their moral relativism that they honestly don't want to say that that's wrong. They won't answer the or, question. Or, or they'll just say, well, I, you know, I wouldn't do it. Right. But I don't want to say that it's wrong for other. Really? <laughs> so if somebody tortures your baby for fun, should I prosecute them? Mm -hmm. Should they have any consequence at all? Maybe not. You know, I mean, is that where we are? So I think in the end, that's, that's the thing we have to help people is to sometimes it helps to supersize an example so they can say, well, at least we agree. Is there, there's there one? Well, even if you said that it's immoral to uh, impose your objective moral beliefs on me, you then agree then there is an objective moral truth, that it's morally wrong to impose objective moral truth. But see, you can't get away from it. it. We all believe there are some objective moral truths. The only question is, which where are they? What, 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 what are those moral truths? So I think that we got to shift that 
discussion. The discussion is no longer, it shouldn't be, are there, well, are there objective morals? And by the way, how do you ground those? Look, it's either grounded one of two ways. It's grounded in persons, either individuals, so that you have a view of the, of the, of the moral world, Bill, and I have a view of the moral world, and they don't agree. That's okay. You're no less a person than I am, so I could never adjudicate. I could never tell you you're wrong, because if all moral truths are grounded in individuals, I'd have to tell you you're less worthy as an individual than me in order to tell you you're wrong. I'm not going to do that. So therefore, everything is true, which means nothing is true. Um, but the other way to do it is to say, well, no, groups decide. But that's still subjectivism. It's just a larger group of subjects. Instead of one subject deciding, it's a million or whatever it is. And and if that's the case, then we'd have to say that the largest group, whatever the, the majority agrees, is morally true. Anyone who doesn't agree with the majority would be holding an immoral position. If moral positions are determined by subjective majorities, mm. groups of subjects, if you didn't agree, by definition, you'd be holding an immoral position. But then someone like uh, you know Martin Luther King Jr. could never make a case because at the time he began to make his case, the majority of people in America did not hold his position. And if, if moral truths are not objective, and transcendent, if they're just the result of, of culture, then he would have been holding the immoral position. In fact, he was holding the moral position because he knew, he understood that that moral position was grounded not in a group. It was grounded in the holy nature of God. So he was able to say, hey, group, you've got it wrong. And although you outnumber us, we're not relying on our numbers to make this true. We know this is transcendently, objectively true because moral transcendent moral truth is grounded in the nature of God, not in the nature of groups. Mm-hmm. Jay Werner Wallace is my guest, and if you read his book, Cold Case Christianity, you will feel like he's talking to you just the way he is right now. He's got a updated and expanded edition of the book. I highly recommend you check it out at coldcasechristianity.com. You can download a sample chapter. He also offers a free course, Maker's Casemaker's course was 30 sessions and 10 hours of content. We'll take a break and be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. I'm back with Jay Warner Wallace. So, Jim, when you were in law enforcement for 28 years, do you, do you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and you have thoughts and memories of a case you worked on? Because I'm sure they were uh, so profound in your mind. Or have you been able to compartmentalize them and sort of stick them on a shelf in a closet? I, I think, um, uh, of course, there's things, there's, there's events 
uh, I think some of the events you you go through in patrol or in um, responding tactically to bad situations, those are the things that stick with you more. I, the cases, I think I've been pretty good about um, putting them. I mean, we, we write about them um, in these books, but but uh, for the most part, I was a, I was good at compartmentalizing uh, even before. You know, I was able to kind of compartmentalize it to the point where by the time I got home for my commute, I was ready to do what I had to do at home. Nice. I just I, I think everyone's just different that way, and and some people are better at that than others. But yeah, I think if you're somebody who takes things too seriously, um, yeah. But also, this is a generational thing too, right? So so. Um, my dad was one of those kind of rub some dirt on it guys, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and maybe, maybe he would drink mm-hmm. more than he should because he's yeah. trying to deal with, with his, you know, the issues. But, but, um, for the most part, he didn't, he doesn't dwell on it. Like, you know, it, it, he would have defined mental toughness. I think we're, we're less and less likely to do that. And I understand it. And I think that, that, that even that generation would have said, well, no, I, I'm just going to deal with it, uh, internalize it or, or drink it away or whatever. That wasn't, that wasn't healthy either. So, so, um, but, but, but for me, it's about, it's like, you know, they always say that, that I'm going to make some enemies here, probably the sexist statement I'm about to make, but how men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti, like women see the connectivity of everything, but men mm-hmm. are really good at just putting it in that little square of the waffle mm-hmm. really far away from this square. I think if you're going to work as a homicide investigator, you better be more like a waffle. You better be able to put that thing in a, in a different square. Yeah, I remember, and I've quoted you many times uh, in terms of how you can uh, keep your emotions intact. And you said, well, uh, I cry for my wife, my kids, and my dog, not my cat. And I thought, there you go. Yeah, right. That's it. Yeah. You have to, like, some some things you have to be a little bit of a jerk about. So, and that, and I think that's that's part of the trick, right? That part of the trick mm-hmm. is how do I, and especially when it's a Christian, because you you're you're trying to def, to protect yourself from overthinking these things, and so that causes you to distance yourself from people that you you can only be like it's hard enough to cry for your family. If you're going to cry for every victim you ever worked, you're never going to be you're going to be a mess. Yeah. So, but but here Jesus is calling us to love even our enemies. I can't even love the victim's family enough to to feel what they're feeling. Well, yeah, I could, but if you're working a bunch of cases, I don't know how long you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a lid, we have a cap on how long we will let uh, an officer work sex crimes in our agency because so many of these sex crimes involve minors. Oh, and wow. and you you don't want to have that become part of your 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 thinking. You know, the way you it'll tear you up if you start thinking about this. It's it's horrific. Well, murders are a little bit different. Like in our agency, you could work murders for the rest of your career once you get in there. <laughs> so I don't know if that's smart, but um, it, it does mean that at some point, it, listen, you know who's really got this mastered? It's not homicide uh, investigators. The people who have this mastered are the coroner uh, uh, staff because those folks, we, we call the coroner out to collect the bodies. Then they're going to oh. take those messed up bodies to the coroner's office and do an autopsy. Mm-hmm. And and you you'll see that there are sometimes there are people who are volunteering with the coroner's office because they're interested in the work. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, I mean, if you you talk about trying to detach yourself from your work so you can do it, because you're going to see some stuff that would is like it's Halloween's coming, and and you know that some of the props that people use in their yards for Halloween mm-hmm. are yeah. are too too scary for kids. Well, what if this was your job that every single time that you went to work, you weren't going to be seeing the, the props. You're going to actually be seeing what this looks like in real life. Yeah. I think that would start to affect you. And I always just yeah. think when I was working these homicide scenes, I don't know how these coroners do it. 
Yeah, I don't either. So, yeah. Jim, we just have a few minutes left. I'd love for you to talk about establishing a first responder model. Well, I, I think some of the things we first responders do, well, let's just, just focus on one just because we have such a little time. I think the first responders know how to train. So let me just it, it, it encourage all of you who are listening that, that training is important and training is different than learning. Uh, training is when you are preparing for a deployment or preparing to have to use the skill that you're learning. Does training involve teaching? Yes. But is training limited teaching? No. And so, for example, if I never, we, officers train, we, we have to train every year in certain post cert here in California and certain post certified disciplines. You have to shoot regularly to demonstrate you can still shoot, uh, hit a target. You have to be able to drive a car fast. You have to be able to wrestle. Your defensive tactics have to be updated. And these are things that we do regularly. We have training days set aside. If you're on a SWAT team right now, you have a robust number of training days in which you are simply practicing your tactics in mock scenarios. And you are doing that because uh, your SWAT team is going to get deployed probably tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that thing you're training to do is got a reality on the calendar. If you have no intention of deploying, you have no need for training. And so if you're in the church and you're thinking about, well, how am I going to share the gospel? Well, if you have no intention of deploying from the church, there's no point in training. So I always say that if you have a youth group or you have a church, establish a date, a time, an opportunity in which your church can do the thing you're teaching them to do. Because without that calendared uh, opportunity, people don't train. They're just, they're just learning. But they're not, they're not training. Training is when you're, you know you're going to have to deploy. You know you're going to have to use this. Boxers train because they are going to be in the ring taking a beating if they don't train well. And because that fight is calendared, they train most vigorously in preparation for that calendared opportunity. Mm -hmm. If we as a church do not calendar opportunities for our people, we will never be training. We will simply be blabbering, blah, 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 blah. First responders know that, yes, it's, it's important to read. It's important to have information, but you have to train regularly because you're going to put that into, you're going to press that into service. Mm -hmm. Jim, what would be the kind of oppor opportunity that a church would do in order to mobilize people and put a, a date on the calendar? Well, for example, you know, look, if you're talking about, if you're talking about the nature of service or what it is to, to help those who are homeless, I mean, how, when's the last time your church went out as a group and had a targeted opportunity to work in a homeless shelter or in a rescue mission? Or uh, if you're, if you're talking about evangelism and why it's so important to preach the gospel or share the gospel with your friends, when's the last time as a group, you went out as a group into an environment and, and engaged people with their questions? If you know you're going to do some street evangelism, if you know you're going to be doing some Ray Comfort stuff on the pier mm -hmm. in Huntington Beach, well, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you're probably going to start training because if you're going to go out next week and you know the camera's going to be rolling and you're going to be standing there being filmed as you're talking to somebody who is aggressively against Christianity, you're probably going to prepare yourself. So there's lots yeah. of ways we could set something up to provide an opportunity for our people. Yeah, Jim, as always, thanks for spending time with me today. It's always great to be with you. Yeah, so glad to, to be able to continue to talk to have these conversations with you, Bill. Appreciate it. Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. Head over to coldcasechristianity.com. Check it out. We'll take a break. Then Dr. Mark Muska joins the program for our Red Word series. Be right back.
Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.